Today I'll be talking to Charlotte Wells, director of the Academy Award nominated movie After Sun. Is she someone who's been on your radar? After Sun is her first feature film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she's like you actually. She used to be a producer. Has she been on your radar or that movie? Yeah, for sure. It it is one of those titles that has been, uh, yeah, absolutely. And also when she was, uh, when the film received Academy Award nominations. Always with first-time filmmakers, it's interesting to understand how they got to where they are. And because her film also has a specific voice. So that would be interesting too. Yeah, it has a specific voice for sure. And also, like, uh, we're based in Sweden and... Uh, how you find us that type of film is exactly. similar uh, to how we do it in Sweden. So that will be interesting to all our Nordic or actually European listeners because a lot of European countries have uh, film institutes or funding, state exactly. funding for uh, uh, for movies. And this is a movie that would actually feel Swedish in a way in its themes. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to talk about it. So here comes the conversation with Charlotte Wells. Welcome to the Filmmaking Experience Podcast where we bring you exclusive interviews and insights into the world of international film production and the people behind the scenes who make it all happen. Today we have a very special guest joining us, award-winning Scottish film director Charlotte Wells, whose latest movie, After Sun, has been winning awards internationally. Charlotte is an exciting and innovative filmmaker. After Sun has crafted a mesmerizing tale of love, loss, and redemption set against the backdrop of a Mediterranean resort. Join us as we sit with Charlotte and discuss her creative process, the challenges of making a deeply personal film from idea, financing, through production, and more. We end the episode with advice to new filmmakers. Did you ever imagine you have to talk so much about your movie for such a long time when making it? What a great question. No, absolutely not. Um, and it's so interesting because I've become a lot better at talking about the film. I'm probably the best in the whole process at talking about the film as I am right now. And yet it also feeds into itself. The way I represent the film starts to be affected by how I'm asked about the film. It's it's a very new and intriguing part of the process. How was your movie watching diet growing up when you were a kid? What was on the TV? Um, TV. Or, or VCR. <laughs> TV was on the TV and and um, pretty mainstream films, honestly. Like I had a £9.99 pass to my local cinema where you could see as many films as you wanted a, um, a month. And, you know, I grew up watching um, whatever was playing. I spent a lot of time in the cinema. I loved watching films. It was a refuge. It was a thing of consistency as I moved from place to place, which I did quite a bit as a kid. It was a way to connect with new friends. Um, and then as I got a little bit older into my teenage years, I discovered the film house in Edinburgh, which is the art house cinema there, um, sadly recently closed. And um, that opened up a world of films. I was briefly part of a filmmaking group that was run out of there where there were really precocious kids programming like ozu like you know curating ozu programs and that was so far ahead of me still at that point that wasn't the kind of stuff playing at home but um yeah i think i credit the edinburgh film festival quite a bit too and opening up what film was to me and introducing me to a lot more independent and international content than was playing week to week at 
the UGC or SME world. And around that time, was it like your film, I call it a film awakening when you start like seeking out, you finding your flavor of independent or more like, I call it films that get like five out of five reviews. Yeah. Well, I think like when you're younger, you want to respond to everything and feel moved by everything. And, you know, it takes a bit of time to have the confidence to say, you know, that didn't connect with me and that's okay. Even if it was five out of five to critics, you know, like no piece of art is for everyone. And yeah, you find your taste and gravitate toward what you gravitate toward. I honestly feel like I was a little bit older. I mean, certainly at film school, I, a whole new world were opened up to me of films I just hadn't seen before and filmmakers I didn't know of before. Um, and I'd say that's really where it began because I started there as a producer with the ambition of being able to work on lots of different things and work on left brain, right brain, like a variety of projects and a variety of genres. And, um, and I made a film and everything changed. <laughs> I defected, defected from producing. Yeah, because I saw on your IMDb that you had some producing credit. Could could you talk about that? Because I, I know one of my best friends and mentor, and he went from a, like, he was a director, and then he realized I'm just, and it's not a lot of people do this. It's like, I'm I'm an, I'm average. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'd better help the other ones that are like, uh, you went the other way. Uh, yeah, I I, um, I went the other way, but I, I do, like, there was a lot I did love about producing. Um, yeah, and then, like, helping somebody to realize their vision and stepping in to fill, like, a role that they need filled, that they need help to, to move something forward and to realize it. Um, I think, you know, I produced a lot of shorts. In film school, I produced one very low-budget feature. It was my first kind of feature project it was Greg and Blair my cinematographer and editor their first feature project um for another of our classmates Greg shot it Blair edited it I produced it um and I learned a lot and it, I think it gave me a lot of respect for that relationship and how hard that role is and what it means to lie down in front of a bus for a project you're not directing but that is still very much yours and and yeah the, the producing relationship is important to me and how do you see like your personality? Because I'm working on becoming a better producer. That's my area. I've written, directed, and I think a director. I'm like, I'm okay. Like, <laughs> but I think I have like a nurturing personality. I'm like, I want everyone on set to you know have a good time, be fed. But I really respect the director that has the vision. So I, I just realized my personality is better as a producer. Uh, basically, like yeah. you know, do you feel like maybe you have? you know personally also suited to be a producer and a director have you thought about i think it's more suited to be a director which is why it's what i'm gravitating towards i mean i don't know like truly what i found in directing was uh something i loved more than anything else i'd ever found like producing was a very intellectual idea i think producing is the thing that best fits my personality and mm -hmm. lets me pursue this and this and this and directing i found something i just loved and felt like I'd found a language to express something that words had never been sufficient to, you know? I'm also quite like being in control, mm. which I think is a quality that's not uncommon in directors, but I also love the collaboration and ceding that control sometimes mm. to people that you trust and allowing them to take something and make it better. 
I'm all about hiring people much more talented than me to make the work. Yeah, that's better. That's you know? the best tip. Like that's how I started. It was always like you know, the DP is always telling cool stories from the last shoot. Let's have a great DP and nobody will second guess. Yeah. People often think I'm the intern on all my production. Like, who's that? <laughs> like, he's, you know, just doing the PowerPoint slide. No, I'm the producer, but I, I'd like to let everyone else talk about the project. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you want you want people to feel like it's, it's, it's theirs too. Like, you're asking people to invest so much in it. It is a shared thing. And yet it's tricky because the director is the one who tends to walk away with all credit, right? Everyone going, not everyone, but a lot of people going to film school. It's like me. I want everyone to share my vision and it's the best gift of all when someone even remotely is actually really interested in your thing. You realize after a while, if you listen to people, that's the hardest thing ever to people genuinely like understanding your idea, wanting to be part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also the challenge is like, our, especially a writer director is to, to communicate that vision to other people and communicate like a confidence in that vision because there's nothing worse than working with a director and the speaking on the other side who who isn't confident in their vision and doesn't you want to feel like you're working on something that could be good and everybody's working and toward people the same have, there's no lack of confidence in a lot of times well that's true that's a whole other thing um, um and you need it i mean you need to be like insane to want to pursue this in in a way i think that's i, I miss my crazy you know i'd pitch the craziest thing and now i'm more like you do and it's true but at the same time like i say project confidence because i don't think you should be confident that it will work i think there should be some sense of not knowing yeah. and finding out by trying mm. and by making and taking risks and being unsure exactly where you'll end up mm. like that's that's where the interesting work lies that's where the discovery lies mm. um and i try to be open to discovery you know like you have the framework a script that that feels ready and this is the first time i ever had a script that felt ready that i wasn't hiding somewhere on set away from the crew frantically rewriting um it felt really good to walk into production with a script that I felt was where I wanted it to be, um, but that still had space to to discover on on set. I'd be and, surprised. And the script that you can download, I think from Deadline. Like, is it is it actual? You know? I need to I need to pretend that's not true. But yes, it is true. And we were starting out. What were scripts this readily available? I remember like big blockbusters were when I started downloading. Um. Yeah, you can kind of get your hands on scripts. I, maybe I, but you went to school maybe through that. Do you remember the first like actual screenplay you held held in your hands? Like, uh, yeah. What was it? <laughs> I don't want to answer that. <laughs> it was Notting Hill. But what? That's a good. I mean, for some reason, at age like I don't know, like thirteen, mm -hmm. I color coded the script to Notting Hill. Because I don't know why would you do that. It's not, it's not like a, an activity that makes any sense. Yeah, but you were following, you understood that was yeah. multiple, like... I was like, kind of color-coded it by character and was like breaking it down. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was a... It was maybe a, you're a line producer. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I was like... But, you know, I think it'll work out. At least this movie seems to be working out for you. So, but you're, you have that, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how I find it. Like, somewhere online, and I was just curious and mm. had never seen a script like a, you know it has its own form do you remember the first a screenplay maybe a short you wrote and then was actually shot yeah that my first my first short film was the first screenplay and i was really lucky 
had like an amazing group of teachers in my first year at film school. I had Todd Salon's my writing teacher, Alexander Rockwell's directing and Casey Lemons is directing the actor. And um, they were the people guiding me toward making my first short film. And I was really lucky that Todd um, was encouraging. Like I handed that first script in and he said that there's there's the seed of something here. And that's all you need to hear when you're starting out. Yeah. Is there something? Keep Keep working. Keep following it. And yet I can still see the version of that. Like... On the rare times I find myself looking at one of the short film scripts, I still see the film envisioned. And it's not the film that exists. It mm -hmm. never is. I think it's harder to do that with After Sun, maybe just because I've been working on it for so long, that it has started, the film has started to supplant the vision in my mind of the script. But there are still moments that I still see, you know, what, what I was imagining in, in my mind as I wrote, because you are conjuring images in your head as you write and, and they're not real, you know? And, and it's like, one thing I thought was so interesting about this process is that I, it was filled with infinite possibility, the script, and then you choose a location and that becomes finite. It gives like shape to something that was really quite amorphous. Like you might have an image of it in your head, but it's not real. Um, unless maybe it's inspired by a real place specifically, which was this wasn't. And then and then you cast people and they supplant whatever image you have in your head of the characters and, and gradually it becomes more finite, yeah. you know, as as you shoot and as you make decisions. Like directing is decision making and problem solving for the most part. And the the short films on your own website is it like curated the four there? Like you th that that's uh, a three? there's three. three and no, I think I'm I think I'm just gonna leave that up and that website will remain unchanged. It felt maybe it's untouched. Like it will be like a little time capsule. Yeah, but um, but it works like that. It's uh, it, uh, it's interesting that you already see. It, uh, well, like I consider the... taking it down. Um, no, I like, like to be. I'm gonna visible. download them and uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's fine at this point. Are you up? Uh, no, I mean they're on they're on Vimeo and and I think it's. I think it's nice that they're there like i really appreciated having access to filmmaker short films um and sometimes they're just masterpieces like lynn ramsey's short films are so spectacular um like robert rodriguez's short films with his family are like so filled with ingenuity and personality you know like many filmmakers have made short films and i, I think it's i think they are an art in and of themselves that i feel like i just started to get a hold on when I moved away from them. I'm not thinking about all the short films that that I refer to. But um yeah, I don't know. And, and they're not perfect. Like that first short film I had no idea what I was doing. And yet I, I found something in it. I found I found something in it that connected with how I saw the world and I found the camera as, as a way to bring life or meaning to that. But there's connective tissue, at least from an outside perspective, to this movie. Sometimes you see people's shorts and they're like, you know, you do shorts to explore. Yeah. You know, not a lot of people like have a style or, you know, uh, something to gravitate towards. It feels unified. And maybe your next movie will be like, you know, a Notting Hill type. You never... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only I don't think I'm capable much, though. I, I like every time I set out to write something that has a more conventional structure and never do, because ultimately that's not what I'm interested in. Um, I do think there's something that binds them and it's interesting. Like that that's something that you then look back on more objectively and you see 
I suppose what's ultimately specific to a filmmaker, like why do I gravitate toward a certain size of shot or yeah. a certain type of image? Uh, like all three shorts were shot by different cinematographers. Mm. And yet there is something I think that unites them. Um, and that's me, uh, I mean, mm. at the end of the day. And I think they're all, there's, there's elements of all of them in After Sun too, but I just had longer and had a little bit more experience and... I think you should always be exploring, though. I don't think that should ever stop. I think that's where work gets stale in some way if, if you stop exploring and taking risks. And how do you convey this, for example, to the DP? Do you do, like, boards or draw or talk, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, my relationship with Greg is, you know, the longest creative relationship that I have. I produced all of his short films in film school. It's um, payback time now. He shot... He shot... Uh, he shot Labs, my second film, but he worked on all the others. He production designed the last short film I made. Um, he's a man of many talents. Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez, yeah. Yeah, music too. Um, he, yeah, he and I started having conversations long before we ever got to to set. And it's, it's a combination. It's me, it's trying to extract images that are in my mind uh, and figure out whether they make sense, whether they're achievable, how to realize them. The the script actually opened with a really ambitious shot of a battery rolling down a bus that we did realize and then ended up not using. Um, because it was too show-offy or... or uh... It wasn't show-offy. Um, like the idea is that, you, that it opened and you see a battery and it rolls kind of between feet and past Chris Packett's and like incredibly technical shot to pull mm. off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and then somebody picks it up and it gets passed back up the bus and you get a, a feeling of who's there, hmm. like young people, older people, couples, families, hmm. and then it reaches our characters. But in reality, and this was Greg's note, actually, um, we needed to match cut from the rave, from adult Sophie in the rave to kid Sophie on the bus to like establish that relationship, hmm. which meant just coming straight in hmm. and forgetting about this idea. But there are shots like that that are in mind, and then there's a conversation around the visual language in the film more broadly, and how to articulate perspective, and and how to use the camera to tell a story. There's some discovery on set. I mean, Greg has an amazing eye, and we share a common taste, but actually our instincts are quite different. Mm -hmm. I always want to be closer. Greg always nice. wants to be further. The AC would make fun of me, because every time... I said, I think we need to try a different lens. He would just hand over the 75. In reality, I wish we had a 60, but we uh, the 60 was missing from our set. I think 60 is kind of perfect. But um, yeah, I always want to be closer and Greg always, always wants to be further away. And I think that makes for a really good collaboration because we're always pushing each other to serve the scene. I'm a dad, divorced dad. My daughter is 11 years old. So people had to carry me out of the screening, you know. Sorry. I, mean, I love crying, crazy. but you know I'm a crier. Like you know, I cry to a man called Otto. I cry to you know. You have done a lot of press with this movie. You've really talked extensively about a movie that's really you know this movie is like the manifestation that you can talk about art. Like you know, you can talk about a painting like for weeks or and a movie with all everything. We you know you can talk about your movie for <laughs> forever. From other interviews, I got the sense that you really want to like take away the notion that there were, this was going to be like conflict in this movie and plots and stuff. Can you talk about yeah. the thought process? Well, when I first conceived of it and the seed of it was just father and daughter on holiday in the 90s, a young father. 
um, like I think I set out to write something that conformed to like a, a more conventional structure and form that was conflict driven in, in a traditional sense. And I think when I first wrote the first draft, that wasn't what it was at all again, because that's uh, just not ultimately what I'm interested in using the form of film for. But there were kind of vestiges of that, honestly, of like conflict and drama and plot that weren't integral to the film structure, but but were did feel reminiscent of a different film. And and as I got feedback, I was constantly getting this note to increase the conflict <laughs> between them, like more conflict, more conflict. And and I realized I think sometimes the best notes you can get are the notes that you disagree with because they clarify your vision for yourself. Hundred percent. And I realized, which is why I think it's important to share your scripts with more people than you might and not just friends who might like it. <laughs> yeah, and I realized that that wasn't why I wanted this to be. I didn't want the conflict to be from within their relationship. I wanted it to be from within themselves, um, which are typically the characters and stories that I'm drawn to. And so I took it out. And it doesn't mean there aren't ups and downs on the holiday. There are. But that's not what it's building toward. It's not mm. building to some massive bust up. Mm that needs to be resolved. It's not a story about an inauthentic relationship that becomes authentic over the course of the film. One third of the movie, people, you know, uh, you watch it and you still, you know, it's just, there's going to be a dust up like the first time they sit at the bar or, or something. And that, you know, you use it. I don't know if it's consciously, but I always try to use it like, you know, they're like waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Lean forward, as we say in Sweden. Yeah. You you have to know that because people do come into films with a set of expectations based on other films they see. And we were working against that in terms of the character of Callum and people's expectations of a father um, in, in this type of situation and what they were bringing and what they expected and how we were countering that in some way and also what people expected of of plot or of of conflict and you know there's different ways to approach a film like what's the story what's the conflict what's the realization what's the question i think what question is the audience asking is a really useful one to ask yourself in every scene um but this is like an anti-movie when you go to you know save the cat or this like this should happen in a movie yeah i mean this is not save the cat film um you know and neither are many of the films that i love to watch and i'm really content just watching people be and i think there's nothing more interesting than watching somebody think yeah. on screen and and ultimately we were asking the audience in the first half of the film hey just hang out with these people they're on holiday and slowly you'll find that moments accumulate into something more meaningful. Um, slowly we will reveal character and that inner conflict for them both. But it does require a bit of patience, as do many films I love. Yeah, but, you know, that's a DNA also of like 99% of in the art house cinema. But a lot of the directors, they want to have both the conflict, the dust-ups and want you to then suddenly watch the details, but I think it's almost impossible to do. Or, or then you need to make this film longer. Like, the your entire film maybe could be, like, the first act, yeah. that type of storytelling. But then, you know, maybe that's the next step to make an eight-hour uh, movie. Uh, but, no. you know, it's very, it, like, it looks easy, but it's, like, super hard to pull off what you did. And it sounds like it was, you know, very, it's not an accident. 
Yeah, no, no, no. Nothing in the film's an accident, I don't think. It was very, very deliberate. Yeah, but, but some directors, you know, they are really like just going, they don't know, they can't even tie their shoes, to be honest, but they, you know, they they, they just have that instinct. And yeah. Like, you know, uh, so it's, you know, that gives us hope, like you, know, you can't think about stuff and, you know, material, this materializes. Yeah, but I think, I think like, again, like I do think it's important to be open, like not to be dogmatic about your vision and, and be open to being surprised because I think that's when you allow space for your collaborators to mm. bring something to the table you know otherwise draw a comic where you have control over absolutely every inch of the frame that's not what filmmaking is no i don't think um you know and um it's about people it's about people in front and behind the camera it's 100 percent. it's about people and it's about relationships and it's about collaborations and yeah i'm lucky to have the collaborators that i have that's for sure you mentioned notes how you finance films in sweden like fully financing could be pretty similar to like the UK and Scotland, like, you know, it's state funded. Could you talk about the process of developing a movie in conjunction with that? Because, you know, you someone sees your script and, you know, has notes and thoughts about it. Yeah, this was conventional and not conventional because I have an American producer. So it came, came, came in from a slightly different angle um, because that producer was the first producer on board. Um, and I feel very strongly about writing scripts on my own with no one else's involvement. I don't really ever want to be paid to write a script until it's done. I'd rather do anything else and, and retain the control of that. Not because I'm adverse to notes, but because I don't want notes before I know what the film is. And I don't like treatments personally. I just want to write. And, and discover as I write. That is where I find the joy in writing. So I wrote the script. I spent six months moving around punctuation marks, and then I sent it to my producer, who wasn't yet my producer, who became my producer, um, producers. And um, and then at that point, we shared it with the BBC. So so like a state broadcaster. It's not exactly state money, but it is a little. And then... And then they joined and they were the first kind of investment in the film. And then it was opening up to other, like to, to state funding, to so the BFI, to Screen Scotland. Um, and we had a bit of American equity too, but it was predominantly British broadcasting and um, and state. It's the same here. It's like you get a channel, you yeah. get a channel, then you get the most of the money from the Film Institute, a regional fund. Exactly. Fund. There you go. It's exactly it. But, um, but you never know. Like I hate to like you know second guess. It's great to hear. Like a bit. it's it's much more complex than that, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, you apply. It's slow, um, but ultimately, I was given a lot of freedom, and they trusted the vision that I had for the film. And and there were unknowns in the script. The, the rave was a real wild card that required a lot of faith that I knew what I was doing, and I didn't because I wanted to find out by making the film. That was the biggest risk going into production was not really being 100% sure that that would work. And the whole film relied upon it, but betting their money, not my money, that it, it would. And, and they trusted me with that. And, and I do feel a lot of gratitude toward them for that. Yeah, without like giving anything away. That's the, how you say, this movie I, in the category of like the sum of all, if, of all the parts type of movie, even though it's also like, I call it a state of mind movie. Yeah. A lot of, 
indie films or what you call art house films, it's a state of mind, but it has no real conclusion. And this also is very open to, but it's also very definitive. And that's, I think, what people really connect with. I did like half a movie. I was like, okay, you know, I'm really liking it, but where's it going? And then like, oh my God, I think I know where's it going. I'm going to cry my, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the like feeling, I think, is that like, is the thing that I focused most on. Like, what is the feeling I am building toward? And I know the context, narrative context around it, yeah. but I also knew that the narrative context around it would be read differently depending on who was watching, yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. Because the feeling was what I was most interested in depicting. I think crying at the cinema, you cry for yourself. I mean, I, I, most of the time you're not empathetic. You really, like, you know, you cry for something that's going to happen, you has happened, you know, you're crying for... It's a selfish thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Okay, <laughs> so I've heard theory. I I brought something. I dug up because of the movie. Wow. I, I want to take a, if it's okay, like a, a a small snippet with this. Yeah. You know what I found on the tape? I was I hope I have tape. It, I sh I shot my daughter like for real like eight years ago. That's now eleven, and wow. the last thing on the tape is her and her brother. That's wild. And also like if we shoot like some seconds here, you will be part of my. That is very strange thought. Yeah, but you know, but it, but it got me thinking what I'm holding now. Yeah, that's the, the worst thing of I hate podcast when you talk about something. Which I'm holding a like DV cam, but the small one that was quite popular. Yeah, mini DV. Mini DV uh, with the sounds and uh, and everything. But uh, in now, in a way, when you shoot something, uh, when you shoot something now on your phone, it's a lot shorter snippets, don't you think, than before? Because I saw this tape and it was like. A, I must have shot 20 minutes, like, in a living room, just following someone around. Probably really banal, right? Like, yeah, that's yeah. what I love so much about it, is it's so tedious, most of what we capture on the yeah, TV. Yeah, but that's the, the, then you start, you're forced to, like, ah, oh, you know, my walls look like that. Your mind drifts. Yeah, this yeah, movie does of course. Same, it, it, it provides the trigger for, like, a much wider experience of memory. Yeah, in the same way, like, you know, 8, 16-millimeter home video had some... The length of it was very specific. I'm yeah. starting to think like the DV, even VHS tapes, the length of those will never have that format or not for a while. Again, the yeah. short, the long. Actually, before the movie and Michael Otto, the time I cried the last was my best friend's dad died. I really then I cried, sorry, more than your movie. I was like inconsolable. No, I mean, that's a, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think I cried for me because my I have a small family. I really was like, I, you know, more than his family. I don't know. I just lost it. Like 30 years of not crying for something personal Yeah, uh, came out. But what, he used to like just set up a camera and just shoot like dinners, like for three hours without moving the camera. And I was... I thought it was so stupid, but not really interested in like watching. You it's know. fascinating. Yeah. I found some video footage of like an extended family member um, who shared it with me, who uh, went back and filmed her siblings and she tells them that she's not recording and then she just records them having dinner. Like the, the. Yeah. A little bit like in the film. Um, I don't think that's an uncommon thing to, to do. I want to make a movie like with this. I mean, I, 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 I enjoy the aesthetic of, of DV. And was there ever a version of this movie just shot on, like, even even a passing passing thought you were gonna shoot this film? The whole thing on DV, yeah. or or you know, no, except on set where Greg would sometimes say, "I wish we were shooting the whole film on DV," mm. and yet we we really 
did fight for 35 millimeter and it's perfect and it's gorgeous and it contributes a lot to the film i think there was just there's something very freeing about davy it's so small you can move anywhere you can move quickly like the actors operated the cameras in the in the in the um film like yeah. th- i heard 16 millimeters like leaving las vegas i think was shot on a small 16 millimeter camera and the Nicholas Cage said, oh, that was great because I don't know what a camera is. Like, <laughs> you can even, you know, and yeah. also small camera, you hold it a bit different. Yeah. Your movie, I would say it feels a bit like a Swedish movie, but like how a lot of Swedish directors hope they'd make their art house movie. <laughs> have you any connection to Sweden and like our cinema? Y- yeah. 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 I was talking about Swedish love story earlier. Uh, um, Especially in talking about kids that age and... uh um actors off screen bergman mm. of course uh yeah another similarity i think uh how film is funded in the uk and scotland when it's state funded it, like in sweden a lot of the stories you know have to talk about the world we're living in the society and people in sweden are like a lot of people are tired of that like can we have like a sheer fall you know <laughs> do we have to show gl- gloom and doom and i've heard some people like over there also like we have to have a ken loach film like every year do you have you ever you know as a like new filmmaker did you ever like feel like you know this type of personal movies you know maybe get like it's too much of something because i think you know as a movie goer you like the balance of everything and when it's too much marvel it could be like too much art house in the cinema if you don't yeah i don't know like i don't think it's like, I don't think that comes down to an individual level. Like, Ken Loach is, is making Ken Loach films, and yeah. they're beautiful. I think that's more a question of who's deciding what films get made and are a small group of people dictating, like, a national output mm. and, and therefore narrowing a style, Yeah, you know, or narrowing a mood yeah uh or or a type of content that that's where i feel like that is more of a problem that obviously like tastes are going to shift and there's periods where people are interested in something and and then something else um nobody is immune to that even if you think you are as a filmmaker so long as you're watching contemporary films you're going to be affected by broadly speaking what's being made um but i think so long as you're watching as an individual a variety of stuff past and present from different places different styles um i don't know like i feel like i'm drawn to filmmakers who are kind of doing their own thing like i think about kelly reichardt in terms of like american independent film and how much respect i have for the work she does and the fact that she is kind of working outside she's not working outside the system she's very much working within the independent film world in the u.s but that she is pretty dedicated to her vision of what's interesting to her what stories are interesting to her and how she's gonna make films regardless of the recognition for example that mm-hmm. those films get because i think like in terms of like oscillating tastes like critics play a role in that too awards bodies play a role in that too like what is being recognized mm-hmm. and what is being like perpetually overlooked or mm-hmm. under appreciated and i don't know i feel like everyone kind of goes with the times to some degree i don't know it's an interesting question 
And I, in terms of British cinema, like I feel a little bit outside of it to tell you the truth in that I'm not on the ground there. Mm. Um, and I, of course, like I watch it and I see the films released every year. Mm. Um, but I do feel caught somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, mm. which is, um, yeah, a strange place to be sometimes. Um, Lynn Ramsey's work was pretty formative in, in, um, discovering the work of a Scottish filmmaker. Uh, it wasn't like a cinema landscape that I was that familiar with until I got into film school. And I think finding particularly like a female Scottish filmmaker was pretty inspiring as far as thinking about what was possible and, and presenting that as an opportunity, um, something that I could do. Can you think of any films you've seen that made you see change your worldview, like shifted how you see things? I mean, maybe my view of what's possible in film. I'm not sure if I've seen anything that's fundamentally changed my view on life. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like Terence Davis's films were pretty special in thinking about in terms of what filmmaking can be, in terms of like what it can be in relation to personal expression and what it can be in in like a technical sense of combining music and picture and sound. Like it's it's so like the experience of watching something, especially films that mean a lot, it's so internal. And I, I don't know, I still haven't really quite got used to talking about what films mean to me in the context of like personally and also in terms of work. Do you think filmmakers have a, like a responsibility to influence, inform, educate the audience? No, I think filmmakers have a responsibility to the story that they're telling. And I think that that can do those things. Yeah. But I don't think that is where the filmmaker's responsibility lies. Mm. I think the responsibility lies in creation and expression, not in education. Mm. Even though it's not the intention you made the film, you made it clear with the last answer, but what kind of impact do you hope your film has on audiences? I mean, the truth is, like, the film has had a real-world impact on people. Like, somebody sat at my last screening and, or one of my recent screenings and, and said that they'd reconnected with their father because of the film. Um, and I've heard that a couple of times, and that's, that's the really real-world impact to something that began me at my desk for several years inside my head and on my keyboard. Like, that's somebody's life. <laughs> And that's not an impact you think of having, I don't think. Um, well, no, you don't. But you would, maybe you wouldn't mind it happening with your other films in other ways. Well, I just think that films are about connecting with people. And so long as a film is an expression of a feeling, like is that doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like you're, you're, that requires audience, you know? It's easy to forget sometimes about the audience when you're so myopic in your view of expression and making something but films are made to be seen and therefore connected with and connecting with something has or can have an impact on your view of the world as I guess we were just talking about and I'm sure I could think of a film that has I just can't off the top of my head but um yeah Notting Hill <laughs> yeah I don't think Notting Hill changed my view of the world uh or maybe it made me overly idealistic and in, in terms of romance I don't know so Fredrik. Uh, well done, man. I think that was a good interview. Thank you, yeah. Fredrik.
I really liked um, how you spoke about finding your place uh, within the filmmaking world, because I think that's something that a lot of emerging filmmakers can be helped to understand that it's about finding your role and your place. And it's not so obvious where your place is when you're kind of funny or when you're young and want to get into the film world. Yeah, 100%. And also, I don't know if the listeners know this about you. You started off as like a, you wanted to direct, right? Didn't you mention me in the podcast? I think you said a friend of mine started to direct and then you started. Yeah. Yeah, so that was me, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> me. I, I, I don't have I don't have many friends. It's just you. No, but I, so I can relate very strongly to what uh, her journey was. I'm just gone the opposite way because I uh, didn't even know what a producer was when I wanted to explore filmmaking. I only knew what actors were and what a director was. So, uh, and I didn't want to be an actor. So I just thought I I want to be a director. But I did that and just felt that that wasn't my role I didn't feel 100% comfortable with it I wasn't so interested in the details you know that that's very much a director has to be detail oriented every shot every line every moment needs to be very specific that's what a good direction is and uh, I wasn't so interested in working with the actors either I just kind of felt like that that wasn't my and that is the kind of the key role for a director is to work with the people that are going to portray the roles. And I was much more interested in the big picture. Like, what's the story? What's the ending? Why is this ending like this? And is this a, what's the genre? And those kind of things. And it was really when I started directing short films that I understood what a producer does. I didn't understand. I thought a producer was just a financier. I thought it was the person with a lot of money. But I understood that a producer is someone who is coming in usually before the director and conceptualizes and nurture the idea and, and maybe develop it and maybe even has brought the script to life before a director comes in and then basically executes on that original idea uh, and try to make sure that everyone follows that vision and hires a director to execute on that vision. I, I just loved that was that was my role, but it took a while for me to, to understand that. Um, we live in an age where uh, indie film directors can jump from that to a Hollywood production or direct yeah. like a Marvel, Marvel movie. Uh, could you see that? Uh, uh, after listening to Charlotte's thoughts on like filmmaking, could you see her making a Hollywood movie? Absolutely. I, I, I think that what a lot of these um, big Hollywood movies are looking for is that freshness in the voice and the tone because... Uh, when you make a comic book adaptation or a superhero movie or uh, something like that, it's you want something to add to to that so that it doesn't feel too generic. And having someone with an, a unique tone can add something. Of course, you don't usually, as an auteur like Charlotte, you you don't get to do completely your thing as as After Sun is her thing. But I'm sure she can do that if she wants to. And also that's what I think my experience from working with a lot of Scandinavian directors that has made a debut where they have received a lot of attention is that a lot of filmmakers haven't really decided if they want to make that journey. And then when that opportunity is given, I can imagine that it's, it's been given now to, to Charlotte Wells. Maybe they haven't re- really thought it through if they want to do that or not. So I think that's something that 
I would give um, uh, as a tips to to emerging filmmakers that do you, what is your journey? What is your vision for your career? Do you want to do that or not? It's it's kind of good to have your thoughts about that because I mean, all of a sudden you get those phone calls and it's it's good to have thought about it. Yes, yeah. that's the first thing people are gonna ask you. Yeah, exactly. When you're looking for a director, would you prefer having a like uh, someone already made their debut film and go through that process and then hire them on something or develop something with them, or could you? Uh, could you go with an unknown quest on like an impressive short film or written a great screenplay? I mean, yeah, I think it's there are uh, cons, uh, pros and cons with both uh, versions. Uh, it is more comfortable w- for a producer uh, like myself, uh, who who also finances films, to have someone who has done a film or two before. It is much more comfortable, and that director has. Like everyone else, you learn from your mistakes. So bringing someone from a short film is more challenging and it also requires that the producer is more hands-on. Uh, usually a debut director needs more support uh, and more guidance from a producer than an, a more experienced director. So it's also a little bit like the producing role is a bit different uh, if the director is is new or not. Then it's uh, guiding but also helping and sometimes helping from from themselves because they haven't really done some mistakes that you ideally as a, as if you're a more experienced producer you you can see those mistakes before they're being done it has pros and cons and how how's your approach to producing are you there uh, you're not there every day always i'm not that... it's it really depends on how uh, how it's going I think that the set should be run by the director. That's my view. And I want to hire a director that I trust to do that job. If I don't trust the director, uh, I think I did a mistake hiring that person in the first place. So I want to have a director who I can trust and I should be there to support so that the director can execute on on the instincts uh, and um, the taste that the director has. Uh, so in that sense, I don't feel like I should be there every day to micromanage the director. But usually when I have the director that I think is doing a great job, I'm present those days where I feel that it's going to be difficult or challenging or so where I can really be of help. But I'm I'm usually not there morning to evening every day. No, uh, Different producers have different views. This is not what everyone does. There are producers who are there every day morning to evening. There are even producers who never come to sets. Could you imagine Charlotte's take on a male called Otto? That'd be really interesting, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And there is definitely a version of that story that she could have done. Yeah. It's, a you know, Absolutely. thinking back on your life, you know. 100%. There, there's more like, that's so interesting. There's always like interconnecting themes between like 100% movies. I also like this discussion that you, that you had. I think you said it, Maurizio, about getting emotionally moved by a story and you said something along the lines of that you cry for yourself yeah which i think is very true that when you're being touched very strongly by a film it is something within your experiences that is being and that's also why a film that is very meaningful could change the life of a person or the the person sitting next to that person might not have the same experience because you don't have the baggage and a film that affected you deeply has something to do with something that you are carrying in your backpack. And I think that's beautiful. 
in, in films that that's why also all films can't be loved by everyone but they can be loved by by some people yeah and that's definitely true for a film like after sun i yeah. really like i recommend it to everyone but also like you have to have something i think you have to have some baggage to really appreciate and understand a movie like that and what was it in your life that you, i mean can you share on, I'm, I'm a divorced father my daughter is 11 years old and also it's a bit unusual seeing like a strong bond between like a young girl and a father you know in out of the concept of a, like a core family like two kids and two parents so you know uh uh, yeah, I really like it. Uh, relate strongly to, to your own family. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, at the end, I'm not going to spoil it. Like, you know, a lot of people cry at the end. It's really, you know, there's not really something that maybe happens like in the context or, you know, traditional screen, you know, something, music and images do something at the end. And, you know, either you start crying like a baby or not. So, you know, this movie, I really recommend it. But it's not for everyone. Like I can imagine some people saying, you know, this is this film is not about anything, and that's the strong thing about it. It's like it looks like it's about nothing, but it's about everything. So can I ask you? Just I'm curious if you, you know, you're talking so much about your personal life. Yeah. And dig into that more. Hmm. So can you remember a film from your childhood or your teen teens when? You were deeply moved by something that was you were carrying, and maybe that even changed you as a person, like that film uh, experience and that emotional impact. Well, I have a, a a story I usually tell people. I don't know how much it changed, but it really, you know, it helped me form this thought up. A lot of times, you're crying for yourself. Yeah, crying to a movie. Uh, uh, what is it called in English? The An American Tale with yeah. the mouses across the, the ocean to get to America. Yeah. A bit like a movie, The Immigrants. Mm. Uh, yeah, at the at the near the end, it's like there's a there's a part when the Fievel, you know, he's running look for his mom. Yeah, it's like you know, listening to uh, I cry for mom, mom. She's going Fievel, and they're like the movie has been so bleak, so you're really doubting maybe they will yeah. never meet again. Like you know, I I cried like a when I, when I saw it as a kid, I was like that little, maybe 11. I was really like crying. Like people had to... And you related strongly to yeah, that. I, I, I'm raised by work yeah. with a single mom. I'm really like, you know, people had to call her like, come get your kid. Yeah. He's like, he's, uh, he's a mess. So, you know, that really gets me. But, you know, generally like kids in like peril movies. So, yeah. you know, it's a poor kid or a kid, you know, especially when it's a good hearted yeah. like kid in a bad situation, like in Slumdog Mirror. Yeah. Those movies really get me. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think I'm thinking of like, you know, life can go so many ways. Maybe, you know, in a different life, maybe I could be, you know, digging for crash, you know, yeah. to make ends meet. So I think, you know, that some movies take me back to that so it's like of course empathy for other kids but maybe thinking of me you know how if i was still living in chile i was really not well off maybe my life would have been different you know i was fortunate enough to move to sweden and had a you know so when you see those stories do you think that's part of you feeling more gratitude that you want to do something with the opportunities you've been given or is it more of a healing from from what you've been through yeah i, I don't know it when the feeling so primal i don't think you really think about it. it's more like you know i think i appreciate what i have okay. and actually fear you know what i might lose yeah. sometimes you will lose your parents yeah. my children will lose me and that's a really scary thought but you know you talk about movies that connect with people all the time this is what happens in those movies you know you start to thinking about some days you know uh, uh i will lose my parents some days you know maybe i can be kind to someone else you know so so yeah 
yeah, humanity, it sounds like a cliche. That's like the basis of a moving movie. So is humanity. Yeah, I think the filmmaker has to have, the filmmaker has to have some empathy. It's really apparent, especially in dramas, if the you know person doesn't really understand what they're talking about. And that's why dramas sometimes are so hard. Like, it, you can really tell if the person making a drama is... It has genuine thoughts and you know affects towards their characters and understands life. Like you and me were over more than forty years old. I think we really understand themes in a lot of these films more than we did before. We when I, I used to think, oh, you know, a family, you know, someone kidnapping one's family. What a cheap plot point. Yeah. Now I really understand what you know. What that's one of my biggest fears. To the listeners, please don't kidnap my family. You know, <laughs> I'll I'll go Liam Neeson on everyone. Uh, how do you think uh, the same question to you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how do you react to emotional movies? There were a lot of films uh, growing up that have made me emotional, of course. But I, I think one film that I I I attribute a lot to me wanting to go into filmmaking was because I was. I, I grew up, uh, my parents were working class. My father was an immigrant from Italy and he had a pizzeria and I didn't have anyone in my family who'd ever gone to university. I had no one who had ever worked in media or culture. That was a very alien world to me. And I had this dream about films. I loved movies ever since I was a kid. And then I was a teenager and I, I had a big identity crisis about what I wanted to do. I felt like I needed to do, to have a proper job and become like a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. But I really loved movies. And then when I was 18 and I had this identity crisis, I was so profoundly moved by uh, the movie Billy Elliot's. Mm about this boy who was uh, had found this passion in dancing and then uh, the, the father and son story and him kind of uh, becoming this swan in the end and his father coming around to support him in that new kind of endeavor and, and working with art and, and something creative coming from a minor family. That was a film that was I was profoundly moved. And it affected my my decision to to really go into the filmmaking kind of career, even though you know dancing. I never been da- a dancer, but it just it, I just it just uh, it was a very very transformative film for me at that time. Yeah, and in the context of this conversation, you know, I can really see it. Like you know, you uh, I can really see you know you seeing that maybe your father that was in the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you know. No, he wanted me to take over the restaurants, yeah. which was, you know, obviously he's an Italian and it's, it would be the obvious career choice for me yeah. if I if I didn't become a lawyer or something like that. Yeah, so that, that strengthens my theory about you know, really crying for yourself or exactly. you know, thinking about your own situation more than one would actually at the first thing, you mm. know, when watching movies. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, Fredrik, it's not too late for you to start dancing. You know? No, I think I want to do that after this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Looking forward to the next episode, and uh, we'll, hopefully, we'll we'll talk about more about that. And uh, note to the future guests: we're not talking about you, like you know, gossiping. We're really digging into the themes of the conversations. And now he's dancing off to the sunset. <laughs>